0: And good morning, Ridgepoint Church. We're glad you're here this morning. Uh, some might not be aware of this, but actually right now as we meet, as we begin the message, we actually have a middle school small group happening. So if you're in middle school and want to join them, they're about to head out. Uh, but just to let everybody know, kind of what we do here, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, is we do RPC groups, and we do high school group during the, uh, during the week. But, but middle school group, they happen right now during this service. So if you're in middle school want to join them, you're welcome to do that. We're glad you're here this morning. We have a lot of exciting stuff to talk about. But when I was, when I was growing up, especially when I was younger, like in, in kindergarten and first grade, uh, there got to be a point where you enjoyed going out, you're kind of free time out in the playground, and you're kind of hanging out with your friends, and, and, and especially the girls start doing like the jumping rope and some different things. And, and, and they'd start having these cute little sayings that they would do, and then they'd kind of build upon that. And I remember one of the ones, and, and first service, everybody knew this, I'm not sure if everybody would or not, but first service, I remember at some point one of my friends came out and said, hey, I learned this new thing, watch this. And, and we, growing up, my brother and I went to a Christian school in elementary school, and, and, and they did this thing where they said, here's a church here's a steeple, open the doors, and what? See all the people. And and it was cute, everyone liked it, but here's the deal. It's not really good theology. It doesn't actually match up with what the Bible says. Now, if anybody went up, if like a pastor went up and said, kid, that's bad theology, like he should be beat up. You don't want to do that to a little kid. But, But here's why I say that, is sometimes we develop the things that we believe just through observation, just through maybe something we heard when we were really young. We think, well, that's just kind of how things are. Well, this series has been about, let's re-examine what the Bible really says about the church. See, sometimes maybe you've gone to church long enough growing up that we just kind of have some basic assumptions that this is how church is supposed to be, and so we just kind of keep doing the same thing over and over. And this series has been about, let's just not do the same things over and over, but let's look back at Scripture and let's consider, is this what the church is supposed to be? Because sometimes we just kind of go through the motions and, and we go to church. And some churches, you go to churches for years and decades. And, and for some people, it seems like centuries. And it's kind of get in a rut of doing the same thing. It's like, but wait a minute, let's examine Scripture for a second. Because if we get in the rut of just going to church and not realize that we are the church... It can become very dangerous to our growth, and it can leave us impotent as a church. And so this series has been about us moving from what they do to what we do, like we are the church. A couple of weeks ago, my first time speaking in the series, I talked about the word in the New Testament for church is the Greek word ekklesia, and the word ekklesia literally means those people who've been called out. And so the church does not refer to a building, the church does not refer, refer to an institution, it refers to the people. In fact, the word ecclesia appears over 100 times in the New Testament in different derivations, but it appears over 100 times in the New Testament. Not one time does the word ecclesia refer to a building. And we realize that this church isn't a building. We're grateful to have some of the things that we have, but the church is not the building. Today, if, if tragedy struck and if, if we're gone and there's, there's a fire and the, and the building is destroyed, the church still stands. And so this, this series has been about discovering, getting to a point of accepting that I am the church and I now belong to a body of believers. And, and there's, a, there's a pattern that happens where we kind of visit a church to find out what are some things about the church that, that I like, what are some things about the church that I don't like. That's why we have Discover RPC is people come in, they kind of kick the tires of the church and they check it out and say, okay, I want to find out more than just the music and more than just the message, what is the core DNA of the church? And that's understandable, that's healthy. But at some point, it goes from a place that I go to visit to where I belong. A couple of months ago, I was having a conversation with someone who had been going to church here for a while. And they kind of, at some point in the discussion, someone who I, could kind of, I knew well enough I could joke around with them. And, and they're asking a question. They said, well, at your church, and asked this question. And I finished the question. I answered the question. I said, but hold on a second. But you said at your, at, at, at your church referring to me, at what point does it become our church? They kind of got what I was getting at. I said, man, there's, there's a point where we go from just it's a place that I go to it's a community that I belong to. When we see Ecclesia in the Bible, it's not a building that we go to meet at, but it's a people. It's a community that we get involved with. And so the series has been about discovering that, getting into that idea. And maybe you've been going to Rich Point for a while, but you still haven't really identified it with, as it being your home. Or maybe you're relatively new and you're asking some of those questions. Discover RPC is set up for that. Status is really an extension of that, saying so we're going a little bit further with the vision of what we're trying to accomplish, and that's happening in a couple of weeks. But today I want to turn back to this idea. We've talked through things like what is, what is the purpose of the church and, and where does the church drive its power, and today we're going to get into that the church is, we're going to talk about the people of the church. And so if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up to Matthew chapter 28. We'll get there in a little bit. We're going to get this idea of, of the people of the church because the church is the people. Before we get into that, though, I do want to share this about kind of some context of where we're going with this message. Uh, in the Bible, as we open up, the Bible is broken up in Old Testament and New Testament. In the New Testament, the New Testament begins with four Four Gospels, the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the four Gospels. And each of those Gospels paints a different picture of who Jesus is. And so Matthew has his audience, he's speaking to, and Mark the same, and Luke the same, and John has a little bit different perspective from the other three all together, and he paints his picture. And it's all giving us a complete picture of Jesus. And so those Gospels cover basically the first 33 years, the 30, 30 years of Jesus' life, basically from about 4 B.C. to about 30 A.D. is about the time frame that those Gospels cover. And then basically at the end of the Gospels, you have the book of Acts. Now going back to the Gospels for just a second, in those Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the third one being Luke, Luke's position, what he did was he was a physician, but he was also a very careful, detailed historian. So as experts have looked into what he wrote, Uh, he writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And yet as he writes, he writes as a detailed historian bringing out some, some different things from the other writers because of that detailed study of the events of Jesus' life. Luke also wrote the book of Acts, which is the history of the early church. So you see the same careful, detailed history put into what Luke wrote in the book of Acts as well. So you have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, with Luke being the third gospel writer out of those, three, out of those four, and then also the book of Acts. And there's very little kind of where, where there's margin between those, those two from the gospels to the book of Acts. But there is a little bit of an overlap, just a, a very short bit. And the reason why that's important is because at the end of Jesus' life, he, he dies, he rises again, and ultimately he ascends into heaven. So at the end of his time here on earth, he meets with different people, and there are people who were who are desperately in love with Jesus. And he meets and he gives them their marching orders. And we see these founders commissioned commission at the end of Matthew's gospel, and then Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, and John's gospel. And there's also the beginning of Acts, a commission, a charge as well. And basically what is happening is Jesus is meeting with people who've embraced his message, who maybe had some questions during the time he was dead, where, I, I don't know, I, I was following this, I'm not sure about this now because Jesus is gone. And then he comes, he says, and we're going to get into this, all authority has been given to me, and now he's, he's extending the commission to them, the challenge to them as believers, that this is what the church is supposed to be about. And now here's the deal. I've read the Bible many times, multiple times, from cover to cover, and I don't see anywhere in Scripture that it talks about here's what instruments you should be playing in church or here's what lights you should have in church. I don't see anything in church about the size of the building that you meet in or or the color of the carpet. Like, none of that stuff is covered in Scripture. There's a little bit where it gets into how church is governed and, and, and how the church should be led. There's a little bit. But those are the things that people really think church is all about. Like, they pick what church they go to based upon, well, I really like the music or I like the lights. And we all have preferences, and I have preferences as well. But at some point, we want to get back to what does the Bible say about the church? We fight about things that really don't matter. We get excited about things that really don't matter. When what Jesus really starts to talk about the church, what he talks about is it, it's, a, it's a group of people that are desperately in love with Jesus, that want to teach others to be just as desperately in love with him. Like that's the mission of the church. And so Jesus gathers with them on different occasions and says, let me give you some different, some some marching orders for the church moving forward to different people. But let me give you a marching order moving forward that this is what I want you to embrace. Now I want us to get this because we have 2,000 years of context. But for them, they didn't. Jesus is gone and now he's back and he's alive and he spends 40 days with us. And in the midst of those 40 days, he gives us marching orders. If we didn't have 2,000 years of context, if right now the people that are in this building were the only people that Jesus was meeting with, and he said with the book of Acts, which is, which is about in this part in, in, in history, to begin the church age, he says, I've taught you a lot over the last three and a half years, but these are the last words I'm going to give you before I go and ascend into heaven. If we're sitting here saying, okay, we need to formulate what the church is going to look like from this point on. We're going to look at these words and say, these are the last words Jesus has for us. They are probably pretty significant. And so as we look at trying to understand why people in the church are so important, we're going to look back at those those words, those final words, among the final words of Jesus. Now, again, Matthew's gospel has them, Mark's gospel, Luke's gospel, and John's gospel. The book of Acts at the beginning has them. We're going to focus on the first, Matthew's gospel. Uh, a lot of people, uh, people research it. You It know, has some, some great words. In fact, it's actually called the Great Commission. It's a commission to us. If, if today, if you're a child of God, if you've accepted Jesus, this is a commission to you. It's not a commission to church leadership. It's not a, a, a commission just to pastors or, or people who are in leadership. It's a commission to every one of us. If we call Jesus as our Savior and Lord, that's our charge. And so with that as a backdrop, I want to do this this morning. And I don't want us to gloss over this, because if you've grown up in church, I remember for my family, we kind of went in and out of church a lot growing up. And at some point, probably in my high school years, I can remember memorizing these verses. And to this day, and it's been 20 years since that was the case, to this day, I can still remember those verses memorized in that specific translation my family used at that point. But here's what I started to see. I knew this, but I didn't really know it. I knew it up here, but I wasn't really living it. I knew it, but I hadn't really dug deep into, okay, what is it really trying to communicate to me as a believer? Forget about me as a pastor. What is it communicating to me as a believer? And so we're going to do two things. We're going to read it first, Matthew 28, 18 through 20. Read the whole thing together collectively. But then we're going to break it down verse by verse. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and read it with me. If not, the words will appear up on the screen. But it says this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Let's read that together all the way through one more time. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, again, I heard these words over and over. I believe these words, but I wasn't always embracing those words. And then I went back and said, okay, let's let's break this down a little bit. Let's really see what is it that Jesus is commanding us to do. And so we're going to pick up first with that first verse, verse 18. And it begins with this statement in Matthew 28, 18. It says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus begins with these, with these followers who, who were desperately in love with him, who wanted to teach others to be desperately in love with him, but realized their world had just been shaken. They, they weren't sure because we were following you. You were this great rabbi, and you took care to invest in our life, and you loved us when, when no one else was giving us a chance, and, and you did all these great things, and there was miracles, and, 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 and you taught with power and authority, but then they crucified you. And if they're honest, for a lot of those early believers, those three days Jesus was gone, There was a lot of soul searching, a lot of questions. And so after that, Jesus comes and he says, listen, I want to let you know, because there might have been some questions. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. I want to let you know the one that you've believed in, there's a reason for that. The thing is that we believe that Jesus has dominion. We believe that Jesus has power. And in fact, last week, that's kind of as we talked about the power of the church, the only reason why we have power today is because of what God has done in our life. The only reason why the church continues to thrive, because experts have predicted for centuries the church is going to die, but the promise of Jesus that the church would thrive. The only reason is is because it's not our power, it's the power of God working through us. And so last week we had this big idea, and we said for for the church to have power, go ahead and show the, the big idea up there. The power of the church is found in the might of God working in and through the people of God. God has power, God has might. For the church to have power, for the church to have the power that we're supposed to have, that dunamis power that's promised to us, it only happens by the might of God working first in and then through me. What we like, what especially if we gather together as Christians gathering together, what we like to see is we like to see the power of God working through me. Like when great things happen, we want to see those great things happen, and we see these amazing things, we want to tell everyone about them. When we see God working through us, it's really exciting. And so for a lot of us, that's what we pray for. We pray saying, God, I want to see this great thing happen in my life. I want to see this, this financial blessing in my life. I want to see health being restored. I want to see this and that. I want to see God working through me. But we don't realize for God to work through us, often God has to first work in us. And we don't always pray for that. So we want to see the answer on the other side and make everything work out just right. But it might mean right now that God says, before that blessing you're looking for happens, I need to work inside of you. I need to change you. So for the church to experience the might of God it only happens through the, the people of God saying, God, I want you to work in me and then through me. And once we have that, once we realize, man, that the authority that, that Christ has, he says the same power that lived inside, that raised him from the dead now lives inside of us. And once we realize, realize that, say, as a church collectively God, you can do amazing things. We believe that. That's what this series is about, going from from what they do to what we do. But then in verse 19, we get to really the the gist of of what he's getting at, what the command is about. And it begins with, with one word, in our translation at least. It says, Go, therefore and make disciples of all nations. But the word go, it sounds a whole lot like a command. If I read that, and if I were speaking to my children, I said, hey, go to the store and pick up a loaf of bread, that's a command. It's saying there's an imperative involved. I expect you to go. Here's the command, now go. When we read it, that's what it appears like. But if you actually get into the way it was originally written, the way Jesus spoke it, he doesn't speak it as an imperative. He speaks it as a word of expectation. A better translation here would actually be to read it while you are going, or as you go. There's an expectation involved. Why is there an expectation involved? Because Jesus had changed these people's lives forever. Because Jesus had done all these miracles and raised people from the dead. Jesus taught with power and authority. And Jesus had just himself died and rose again. And so Jesus says, there's an expectation now because of what has happened. I assume you're going to be going. So while you're going, the command is about to come to go make disciples. If something great happens to us, We want to tell people around us. Like, it just kind of makes sense. If today we had the capacity to do this, and we don't, I wish we did, but if we had the capacity right now to say, okay, for everybody here on the way out, we're going to give you $100,000. First of all, who would like that? That would be awesome. I'd I'd enjoy that myself. If we said, man, on the way out, everybody, $100,000 on the way out, we would love that. And chances are, for most of us, we would want to tell somebody about it. Uh, some people are like, no, I'm not telling anyone because my neighbors going to come up and ask me for some money. I'm not telling anybody. But for a lot of us, man, we'd be like, dude, I can't believe what just happened. I want to go tell everybody what, all this event. Like, that's crazy. When good things happen to us, we want to share that news with people around us. Jesus comes. And because of what he's done, his death and his burial and his resurrection, because of him taking our place, he gives us a freedom that even $100,000 can't afford. He gives us ultimate freedom. And so he says to those early people gathering around, listen, I know what you've experienced. I know what you've seen. So while you're going, because I assume you're going to go, while you're going or as you go, the command here is actually make disciples of all nations. The command is for every one of us. The command isn't just for pastors and for teachers. The command is for each one of us to go and to make disciples. And that can seem intimidating at first because a lot of people maybe didn't grow up going to church. And you say, well, I don't even know a lot about the Bible yet. This is all kind of new to me. That's okay. There's a process we go through where we start to mature in our faith, and that's a big deal. No one is void of that that project in our life. We should be going through this idea of, of being more mature in our walk with Jesus as we grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is. And as we grow, we start to become more and more familiar with what he's trying to accomplish in our life. But even before we get there, you see, the early followers of Jesus, they didn't know a lot of the Bible. They didn't even have a lot of the Scripture. What they knew is, man, Jesus came into my life, He changed me forever, and I'm not the same. And all I have to go on is my story, and my story is powerful enough. And so for a lot of them, they just went and said, listen, I don't know a whole lot about the Old Testament stuff and and what they would say here and prophecies and all that, but I know Jesus came and he changed my life. And I'm never the same, and you can't shut me up from talking about that. We see that in the book of Acts, man. These bold witnesses are saying, I can't help but speak of the things I've seen and heard. God enters our life and changes us the very same way. And maybe for some of us, that was a long time ago. And we can remember, man, I used to have this, this kindle inside of me, this, this fire inside of me. And, and, and I wanted to tell people about it, but at some point it just kind of became mundane and as kind of start going through life and life starts to get busy. And we start to talk about things that really aren't of that much importance. Jesus, your call right now is to remember that. And to go make disciples. And it begins by, telling, by sharing your story. It continues by me growing in, into understanding Scripture and being able to actively disciple people around me. And so people say, I can't do that. The power of God working in life says you can do that. It continues by me saying, I want to actively pray for people around me, people that I care about and people that I don't even know. It begins by me saying, I want to be able to, in a very proactive way, love people extravagantly. And through that, maybe earn the opportunity to share them about the faith and hope that I have in Jesus. The command is to make disciples. And make disciples of all nations. In the book of Acts, we actually see a series of concentric circles. It begins with, First your witnesses in your area, for them was Jerusalem and Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Twice in these commands, we see that we're supposed to make disciples of all nations. We try to do that as best we can at Ridgepoint Church to say we want to do some things locally here, let people know who Jesus is, but also be able to do things globally. And we go to places like Dominican Republic, we go to places like Honduras, and sometimes we get pushback from, from people saying, well, why do you go and help out in those other countries when there's so much need that's right here? And I agree there is, there is need that's happening right here in our community. I agree 100%. The thing is, the other 51 weeks out of the year, we're really focused on those things. But for a week during the year, we want to focus on, I and mean, we're supposed to do this, because when I go and see the need, and there is need here, I never want to belittle that. There is need here, but go with us this summer to Honduras. Go up the trash, on the trash mountain in Honduras, because in Honduras you're actually allowed to go up on the trash dump and hand food out to people. And you'll see there's need here, but the need sometimes in these third world countries is even more drastic. So this summer, the beginning of August, we're going to Honduras. We have a team of, I think, nine or ten of us that are already signed up. We have room for three more people. We would love for you to join us on that trip. If you have any questions about that, if you want to join us on that trip, please see me. We're kind of finalizing those details right now. See me after the service this morning so we can make those plans. Go make disciples of all nations. The reason why we do that first is because there's need out there that is even bigger than what we see here. But the second thing is because we're commanded to do it. If someone comes and gives pushback and says there's need here and you need help out here, I agree. We try to do that as best we can in a variety of ways. But the command of Jesus is not to make disciples here, but to make disciples of all nations. And the question becomes, okay, now how do I do that? Because the command here is not to go. The command is to make disciples. That's our calling. And once I start to do that, I say, okay, I want to do that. But what does that look like? And Jesus, in the following words, in the end of verse 19, the beginning of verse 20, he has these phrases he uses. He actually uses a participle to go back to, refer back to how we make disciples. He uses two different words. The first word we see here is we make disciples of all nations by first baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. What does baptism entail? Baptism is simply an outer sign of an inward change that happens inside of us. So when we start to share our story about what Jesus has done in our life, how much he has changed us, we say, listen, I don't know a whole lot about this, but I know Jesus changed me. And when he changed me, I went from being dead to being alive. It wasn't that I went from being a good person being from being a bad person to being a good person, but I went literally from being spiritually dead to now being spiritually alive. And so baptism is simply the picture, an outward picture of an inner change. And so we start to share our faith, we start to share our story. People say, I want to have that same thing inside of me. We say, That's great. Here's what you can do to really embrace Jesus as your Savior. And once you do that, one of the first steps of obedience, not necessary for salvation. But one of the first steps of obedience is to follow him in what we call believer's baptism. And so we love, we have a screen right here behind the screen. We can lift that screen up, and there's a baptistry back there. We want to see people take that next step and say, man, I've embraced Jesus, and now I want to publicly profess to people around me about the faith that I have. I would love nothing more this year than for a church to say, we want to wear the motor out on that screen. We want to raise that screen up and down so much this year. That we need to replace it because we're replacing it, that we're doing this so much. Like that should be our calling as a church. Is say, man, we need to be about leading people to Christ, seeing them baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And listen, here's the thing: if you want to, and if they want to do that, there's nothing in the Bible that says a pastor has to baptize anybody. so if you're part of the discipleship process and they want you to baptize, to baptize them, guess who gets to do it? You. That's our that's our challenge. Go and make disciples by first baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Now if that freaked you out and you said there's no way I'd do that, that's okay, we can take care of it as well. Some people are like, there's no way in the world. But baptism is the outward sign of what's happened inside of us. So the first thing pointing back to make disciples is that we go baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. The second thing is this, verse 20. It says, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always at the end of the age. I love that promise at the end of that to those who, he's about to leave physically, he's saying, I'm gonna be with you spiritually. But he says the second part of of this command, the second part of the participle tying back to the command, is teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. As we start to mature in our faith, our responsibility as leaders should be to disciple those around us. But how we multiply in disciples is by those disciples producing disciples. By those people, who and it, and it takes a maturing process in our own life. I agree. But here's the thing, about, the thing about when we mature. There's never an excuse not to mature. God's call is for us. Is once we embrace Christ, to grow in the grace and knowledge of who he is, and that's something we should be doing on, on a regular, active basis. If I think it's as simple as I can show up to church on a Sunday morning and I can be fed enough on Sunday morning for the rest of the week, I am deceiving myself. Uh, I love, we have a nine, almost 10-month-old son, uh, amazing kid, cute kid. And I love right now the stage that he's in because he's still the processor, like giving him more and more food, and, and I love feeding him. And here's the thing, when I feed him, and he's still young, and you try to stick the spoon in, and he's knocking it away, and there's food flying all over the place, a lot of what I try to feed him doesn't always get where it's supposed to go. And I feed him and he hits it or he spits it out and it's on his shirt and it's on my shirt and it's on the wall and it's across the street at my neighbor's house. I don't even know how that happens. But the same thing happens when we try to teach people around us who are really new to all of this. A lot of what we teach doesn't sink in right away. A lot of it doesn't get where it's supposed to go right away. But the older they get, the more it starts to work. The more mature they get, the more the feeding process starts to work. And as much as I love feeding my son right now, I long for the day he starts feeding himself. Like, I can't wait for that to happen. Our maturity as believers is that at some point we need someone to feed us like we need that. But in that process, it gets to the point where I don't need someone to feed me. I can start to feed myself. If I think I can get by on what happens on Sunday morning. It's going to sustain me for the week. It doesn't work. And that's how I lose my passion, my purpose, my focus as a believer. So it takes me throughout the week and I'm saying, I want to continue to be fed because if I only ate on Sunday morning, I'd be really hungry by like Sunday afternoon. I'm saying. But if I continue to feed myself, if I continue to grow, maturity starts to happen. It doesn't happen overnight, but it starts to happen. Maturity is a big deal. As, as he's, saying this as he's saying this is what we should be about as as we teach we realize there there are different people at different walks in their journey in, with jesus right now and so as we teach we have to be aware of that that's why we teach in a certain way on church on a sunday morning we also encourage people and challenge people to get involved in groups because there's even a better capacity to grow and get involved in groups uh, people can learn in rows but learn a whole lot better when they're sitting in circles facing each other talking about some of these principles and some of these ideas and so we have this process of saying, we want to be about maturing as believers. We want to be about growing as believers. For the person who right now doesn't believe, there's a maturing process involved in their life. And for the person who is a believer, you see, a couple, of, a couple of months ago, back last year, probably halfway through the year, we did a series in church. I don't want to bring this series all back up, but just to talk about the important role people play in our church. We said we had this series called The Table. How many were here when we talked about The Table? Quite a few. So, we had this table set up. We said there are three different areas, and three different groups of people that we often see coming to church. And one part of the, the one group of people is people who are seekers. They're here. They say, I have questions, but I'm not sure about all this Jesus stuff and it's God stuff in the Bible. I'm not sure about all of that, but I'm here to seek and investigate. That's fine. We're glad that you're here. You're part of the mission, and, and we value you as, as a church. For those who say, I've embraced Jesus and I'm in the process of growing, Really significant for you as well. We're glad you're here. You also are part of the mission of the church because our goal is to lead people, that's all people, in a growing relationship with Jesus. And there are some, probably not as many, but there are some who say, I'm pretty mature in my walk with Jesus right now. I've been doing this for a while. There's maturity that I've brought in my life. And here's the thing about people who are mature is that maturity also, even if we arrive at a spot of being fairly mature in our walk with Jesus, if we don't continue feeding ourselves, and if we don't continue to allow others to pour into us and feed us, at some point maturity can be lost, and that's a dangerous thing. I can think about people that I looked up to, and that I still look up to how they used to be, and I man, they were so much further engaged with Jesus, and so much deeper in the walk with Him that I thought I could be. And I saw them, I said, man, they're incredibly mature, and now I look at them and something happened. It seems like they're just kind of walking away and they're not where they used to be. That's because for maturity to happen, we have to realize in humility that my maturity is not because of anything I've done. So I have to continue to allow myself to be fed and be poured into and I have to continue to study on my own and and, and grow and change. I need all these sources speaking into my life. So this year, beginning of the year, we met together as as a staff. And I said one of the things, one of the areas I want to be challenged as a staff this year is in the, in the way we pray in our prayer life, and, and so together as a staff, we're going through this book right now, and it's a pretty thick, pretty intimidating book, but Tim Keller's a pastor up in, in New York, a great writer, uh, but he wrote this book on prayer, and kind of his own journey uh, through discovering really the power of prayer in his, in his life, and I said, you know, I think that's something we need to focus on as a staff and as a church this year, and so I was put it out there, if you want to join with us, we're only reading two chapters a week, it's not a whole lot, but just the first couple of chapters have really been encouragement to us. But just as, as a way of saying, we also, every one of us, have to continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of who Jesus is. And when we do that, that gives us the capacity to begin to teach, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the and Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that Jesus commanded. For the early disciples, they had seen, disciples, they had seen Jesus. They saw the miracles. They saw all the stuff happened. And they said, we want to be able to teach others about this. Today, the stuff that we've seen. See, when we look at the early church and see the miracles that happened, look at the book of Acts. Yes, there's still like physical miracle stuff going on, but even greater was the the spiritual miracles of thousands of people coming to saving knowledge of who Jesus is. Thousands of people at a time saying, I want to embrace that message. As we leave the doors of this church this morning, there's a generation of people that is looking for hope, the hope that we possess. And the greatest miracle we see is when those people who who have no knowledge right now who Jesus is come to embrace the hope that's found in him. And that calling is not left up to the pastors and leaders of the church. That calling is on every one of us. Any one of us who has a story that says, man, Jesus delivered me from where I used to be to where I am today, that's our story and that's our challenge. See, when Jesus talks about the church, he doesn't talk about all this other stuff that comes and goes. He talks about the people. This week when I was doing some studying I came upon there's a guy who talked about the whole thing about here's a church here's the steeple open the door and see all the people and he actually and he said you know I got a better one than that he said here's a building the building has a steeple open the door the church is the people we right here we are the church this challenge is to us make disciples how do I make disciples baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teach them about all the things Jesus did. His promise is that as we do that, He's going to be with us. Let's pray.